What's up? My name is Rosalind Claru, and you are now listening to Americanized, a storytelling podcast where you'll hear from eclectic first and second generation Americans share their stories and real life experiences as children of immigrants. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Americanized. In this episode, I talk with Tu Nguyen from Worcester, Massachusetts. Tu is a proud Vietnamese refugee who immigrated to the United States with their family at the young age of one years old. Currently, Tu is a youth worker and the first non-binary candidate for the Worcester City Council at large. They have a strong dedication for their community with a focus on healing work, liberation, and justice. They emphasize the leader within all of us and the power we all hold, as well as the work we can all do to connect and make an impact. So, stay tuned. So, two, welcome to the show. Thank you for being on, and I would like you to share a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, what your interests are, and all that good stuff. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm a queer Vietnamese non-binary refugee, and I'm currently running for Worcester City Council at large. Um, currently for work, I work at the Southeast Asian Coalition as the director of projects. And just in general, I've just been doing youth work for the last 10 years and community organizing and just, you know, trying to do this fight for liberation and healing justice, um, you know, the desperate things we need in life even though to me, it feels like the baseline, but you know, here we are really trying um, to do this work. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I've, I read up on you and you've, you've done like amazing, amazing work and uh, you seem like a very influential person and just all around like a good person at heart, just doing what you're doing and calling it like the bare minimum, like just letting people live in peace. Yeah. I mean, I definitely really try. Um, my hope is that like, you know, I don't, I hope that people aren't just inspired by me. Like, that's not the point. I think the point is that people see themselves um, being able to do all the things that I do. Like, I think I'm an ordinary person who just really cares and who believes in investing in humanity in people and in their communities. You know, I don't want people to look at me and be like, oh, two does so much. Like, that's that's the extraordinary thing it's like no we're all capable of really doing this work together um and to be happy and you know really be in love with our life and feel fulfilled as we do this right I love that it's like seeing you and knowing that we can do the same thing you are inspiring others to do what you're doing that's the hope at least yeah, yeah. The last thing I would want is for someone to be like, oh, yeah, it's who's carrying, you know, the bags so no one else has to do it. It's like, nah. right. it's like, it's so much more fun when we're all doing this together. That's true. That's very true. So you're campaigning for the Worcester City Council. And I heard that you recently got on the ballot. I did. How I does did. That feel? It's, you know, it, it feels very real. Um, and I mean, even before then, there was just so much support already that it was already real. But to be on the ballot and to know that like first step is like done. Um, and now I think is when you climb the mountain, you know, before it was like, 
yeah, let's like take a ride to the parking lot. And now it's like, now we got to really do that climb um, to really get out the vote, to really make people know that like change is possible. Um, for me, it's not just about getting a seat. It's about how we get there and also the political landscape that we have to change, you know, on a local level and a national level. Um, and Worcester, I think we're always looking at Boston or we're looking at AOC and we're, you know, looking away when we actually have to do the work inside. Um, and we need to stop running away from doing our actual internal work here. Um, and so that's my hope is that like, you can be inspired elsewhere, that's good, but also like you can't just once again, pass it off to someone else to do the work. We have to do it ourselves. Right. It takes effort. It's a group effort for sure. So what took you to, um, like, what were the steps that led you to being on the ballot for this campaign? Ooh, I think, you know, the first step, which is simply imagination. Um, mm -hmm. Last year, I, I would say I confirmed within myself my run um, back in the summer after, you know, a really painful summer of a lot of, um, you know, black and brown folks being murdered and, you know, definitely George Floyd and all the, you know, the unraveling that we've seen in our communities afterwards and seeing the ways in which our government just didn't respond really. Um, and if anything, there was a lot of gaslighting, a lot of um, pushing back and saying like, oh, there isn't racism or like, you know, there is, but you know, X, Y, Z and just feeling very dismissed and disregarded um, in this matter and seeing COVID and how our community has been neglected and left behind in a lot of decision-making tables, um, seeing how COVID amplified you know, the horrors of poverty and like homelessness and all those kind of things for me was kind of that, that push for me to be like, I keep telling people too, uh, that like another world is possible and that we have to reimagine something different, especially during a pandemic, we can't go about like normal anymore. And so, as I said that in myself, I was like, oh, too, you have to imagine something different too. And in that, I was like, oh, man, I guess, you know, running for Worcester City Council is something that I never imagined. But, you know, for the sake of community and to be at decision making tables um, for the future, that that is something that I'm going to take on. And so I think it started there, um, deciding within myself to run and then coming up with a dope team, you know, who mm -hmm. are from the community, who love the community, who put their hearts in it. And, you know, we're, we're, we're an amazing team. Like it's an amazing group of like badass, like mainly women, um, women of color specifically um, running um, my team. And for me, what I love about it is like, we never really did this, you know, like no one taught me to be a political person. Um, I'm just doing this because I care. And, you know, I think Michelle Obama once said, like, she's been at all the decision-making tables and they're not that smart. It's like how I feel when I'm running. I'm like, you know, like, if these folks can do it, I can do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it started off with instilling hope and knowing that you can, you can be the change that you want to see and making that real for you and your community and your city. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a youth worker and I actually just turned 30. And so for me during this time, I was actually feeling very hopeless. Like I was like, like at the end, I was burning out. I, you know, help started Mutual Aid Worcester um, and was doing so much work for, you know, just survival, community survival. And I was burning out because I saw no hope in the government. And I was like, if I'm 30, what is a 15 year old gonna think? You know, how are they gonna navigate the world if they're seeing, you know, deaths daily? Um, and I was like, I, as someone who's a little bit older and have reached a place of a little bit of privilege and power or authority, whatever you consider it, um, I was like, I have the duty to really try to carve something out for them whether I'm successful or not, whether, you know, I get the tools to, you know, shift the government or not, I think they need to see a blueprint or a different imagination of what is possible. Right. And so that's what inspired you to lead youth and work with youth. No, I've been doing youth work for like 10 years. I just love them. I think they teach me so much in life. And like, I just feel like a youth myself, to be quite honest. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I work with some youth at my church and they're, it's a, it's fun. It does make you feel young just being like, <laughs> you. it's like you're an adult, but you're not an adult or you feel, especially being like a young adult. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's a time skip, you know, you just yeah. get to... <laughs> All the things that I didn't get to experience as like a refugee child, I get to redo with, you know, actual kids. So that's nice. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And so you are a refugee and your family comes from Vietnam? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when did you come over to the U.S. and what was that like? So I came over in 93 and my dad actually was imprisoned for six years because he fought, um, you know, for his country. And once this, you know, fall of Saigon fell, he was in prison. They call it re-education camp, but let's just be honest, it's prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I came here when I was one and a half, pretty much. And so I would say it it was very interesting to grow up in Worcester, Maine South specifically, because it's one of those areas that's like very diverse and everyone's kind of in the same like low income bracket. Um, and so I didn't really understand a lot of the things that I do now in terms of like, you don't really know you're poor when everyone around you is poor, you know, you kind of just assume, or like, you know, that you're different from your friend because you speak Vietnamese and they speak Spanish and, you know, X, Y, Z, but you, you don't realize the systemic things, you know, it's just like, oh, this is normal. Like we're just different in a, you know, in a way. And then. I would say as I was growing up, I just realized like, especially in schooling where I'm like, wait, as an Asian person who, you know, is automatically assumed I'm smart, even though I suck at math, you know, and then my friends who are in special ed or in lower, um, you know, graded classes are like my black and, you know, brown friends, like what's up with that? Um, And then I think it started weaning in probably like middle school that there is something like inherently wrong with the system that teaches you know a fifth grader that they're stupid you know and that that's just who they are you know if you're graded as a as like a c or an f student that's who you are for the rest of your life and there's no way out of that track um i saw a lot of my friends being in that pit hole 
Um, and so, yeah, I think my that's kind of like my experience of like learning a little bit more about like race. And then when I went to college, like I went to Middlebury College for a bit and it's like a really rich white school. And <laughs> that was just horrendously shocking because once again, you know, this is where you're supposed to have like social upward mobility and these people are supposed to be smart. And I was like, my friends back home who are hustlers, way smarter than these people who keep breaking vending machines and just drinking every weekend. And here I am in a sociology class and they're just looking down on like everyone I love. Um, so that was kind of like, you know, a little bit about my experience with that, but yeah, as like a refugee, I think it's it's very difficult because you're not taught your history. I didn't learn about being Vietnamese and Vietnam until I was like 21 when I actively did the search for it. Um, before then, it's like no, no one teaches you this school system. Um, that, it has like a white version of the Vietnam War, you know? And so being, I think, a BIPOC person, you just have to really dig um you know into your library and into your tools by yourself all the time that's a good point everything is whitewashed in our history classes and the whole education system it's a system like they they know what they're doing so you do have to dig into your own they research do. yeah which is interesting especially like you basically grew up in america and grew up with not without knowing your history or where you come from Mm-hmm. that's really interesting that's good you got to like or you had to do your research and get to know where you come from who your people are and all the background yeah and you know I I think at like 21 I realized I didn't know what love was you know like I just had my first like heartbreak and I was like whoa I like don't know what love is because I really love this person it didn't work out and then it made me think about how you know like we're conditioned to learn certain things, right? And so even with family, like I didn't know how to love my parents, you know, like you just think these are like natural things that might happen, but I think we're so, you know, colonized and like detached sometimes because that's the conditioning of life. Um, And so when I realized this moment where I was like, I don't know what love is, then I started thinking about my parents and how like, I like abstractly know that I love them. But, you know, there's like all these missing pieces, you know, because growing up, they weren't emotionally available. They weren't there for me physically either because they were working so much. And so part of me had to do that remapping of my mind and my emotions to be like, well, this is what actually happened. You know, like they love you and all they could do is think about your survival and putting food on the table. Mm-hmm. It's like they love you and culturally they don't say the word love. They say, have you eaten? Here's some food. You know what I mean? Right. So like, you know, in my search of understanding love, I had to go back to my roots, you know, in order to like really um, do that healing within myself and my family. Wow, that's so really... That's making me think how love varies across cultures. I don't think I really ever thought about that. But I did know that, like, yeah, my parents are not emotionally available or physically available either. And I never incorporated love into that, which is making me think right now. Like, yeah, I think it, it it's hard because I think as a child, especially if you, like, 
watch, you know, TV yeah. and like you see, you know, the, this is what being a parent look like. It's and supposed then, to be you. Yeah. And then you like realize like, you know, it's where our families are a lot different than what it is on TV and we have to really give them some grace um and that people have different love languages um, right yeah it's a different type of love it's not what you see on yeah. TV but it's it's there in their own way mm-hmm. so you said that you work at the Southeast Asian Coalition mm-hmm. how long have you been doing that I've been there for roughly two years now and you know, I, I love, I love my job. You know, I've, once again, I've always done like more social justice things and youth work and community work. Um, and it was, I feel like, you know, there's something about divine timing in life where I was like, I wanted, there's this book actually called the revolution starts at home. And it's actually about like domestic violence and like, you know, doing that work in your, um, you know, life and in your family and in your home. But I love that saying the revolution starts at home because I think through our intimate connections and our internal things, that's where healing begins. That's what revolution is, is that transformation. Um, And so, yeah, two years ago when I had the opportunity to actually work with Southeast Asian um, immigrants and refugees like myself, I was like, absolutely you know this is this is where the healing begins and also to think about the generations after me um people don't really understand this but I actually think and I bank on the descendants after us you know whenever I'm thinking about the timeline of change I'm like descendants that's my automatic thought um and you know in in America and especially in Worcester is that like what we're seeing as a Vietnamese person, you know, what I'm seeing is the pattern of like, you know, after the third and fourth generation, you kind of start losing a lot of your history, losing a lot of your language. And, and also the assimilation to whiteness begins to accrue, as well as the gap of the people who don't end up successful, right? Um, Because people always assume that all Southeast Asians are like East Asians and they're successful. (laughs) And so um, my hope is that we kind of mend that um, almost immediately to do more intergenerational work and for Southeast Asian folks to really commit to um, being more social justice based in our work and in how we treat each other and that that we don't get to a point where the gap of like, assimilating to whiteness is so high that people neglect people who you know aren't succeeding because of all the conditionings um whether that's because they're darker Asians or because they're from different regions that kind of stuff as well as we commit to the fact that now we're on you know indigenous land Mm -hmm. and that this place has also been you know built by um, you know, Black folks and like other immigrants and refugees and that we really commit to, you know, the collective um, and not just just go off into the assimilation of whiteness. Right, right. It's so important. What, what kind of work do you do with the Southeast Asian Coalition? Oh, that's kind of a hard question because honestly, we, we do a little bit of everything from um, supporting small businesses to direct referral services to doing a lot of like recently um, because of COVID 
Um, last year, I created the Immigrants and Refugee Pantry. Um, and that was a response to the fact that a lot of folks who are undocumented was too scared to go to a pantry um, because they would ask for an ID. Um, and, you know, obviously when you're undocumented, that's a scary thing um, to be asked that. Um, and so I had a lot of people reaching out to me. And so with that, I was just like, we need to fill that gap. And so the Southeast Asian coalition never quite focused on working with undocumented folks, but, you know, we, we saw the need and we filled it. Um, during the pandemic, also our elders were really isolated. Um, you know, when we talk about, you know, quarantine, right, lockdown, you're like, okay, it's easy for me as, you know, a 30-year-old to kind of do that. But all of a sudden, for a 79-year-old, how are they going to get their meds? <laughs> um, and so the Southeast Asian Coalition, we started doing deliveries, hot meals to like the essential things um, for our elders. And we also run a really amazing youth program um, that's now more steered towards social justice and like them thinking about, you know, their place in the world, as well as really processing um, what has happened in the last year. So I don't know, it's hard to say we kind of, you know, is all different types of hat type thing. Yeah, you do a little bit of everything you touch, change people's lives everywhere you go, it sounds like. Try. <laughs> yeah, definitely have a dedication to the community in your community. What does community mean to you? Oh, that's a really hard question because Adrian Marie Brown kind of talks about like, you know, um, I think it's like mile deep, inch wide. Um, and it and that's kind of a statement to say that a lot of people, especially nonprofit or people who think about impact, they're always thinking about how many numbers can I get? You know, how many bodies did I feed? How many people did I shelter? And Adrian Marie Brown talks about critical connection versus actual like these numerical things, right? Um, and so I think community really comes down to connection. I just think about the people who will show up for me and I will show up for them or the people who I, I just would naturally show up for. You know, I think um, it's just building relationships, you know, and I know it's easy to say like black and brown community or like refugee community, Vietnamese community. But for me, it's like, I think we all transcend those things at a certain point where we're just in connection to people. Um, and that to me matters more than, you know, I, identity sometimes, because I think we could be very limited. Um, community is very expansive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good answer. Because when you think about community as really inclusive, and I think when we do have labels for ourselves or labels for each other, we tend to exclude naturally, or we're not so open to helping others or like seeing needs where there where there are needs and being willing to help. I think yeah, yeah, community communities like the black community, we're all kind of kind of isolate ourselves and then we don't see the big picture. Yeah, I think it's different when we're talking about like different experiences experiences in certain communities right because like the queer community will experience something different and like even you know BIPOC queer folks is going to experience something different than white queer folks you know and so I think it's 
it's okay to think of it in terms of like a like data or experiences and lives and you know that formulates a community collective narrative or experience but for me in terms of like when we're living in community it really is about connection yeah right and how we connect with each other just on a basic level just being humans yeah basic needs yeah yeah and that's definitely not to say all lives matter (laughs) you know (laughs) you know what I mean It's, it's not an erasure type statement but it's just like yeah connection I think is community Mm-hmm. I, I hear you. <laughs> That's that is not the same. Yeah, definitely not. The same. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> yeah, because you know some people will. They be like, oh. So it sounds like your biggest thing is that you want people to be seen and you want people to be heard. And for other people who are either inspired by you or hope to do the same things in their communities, how do you like where where would people start? with having an impact I always I always say that you know there's roles for everybody um I think our society messes up when we have these these notions of like oh you have to be a charismatic leader you have to be an extrovert or you have to be xyz to be impactful um and once again that's why I love the notion of like you know miles deep inch wide because it really is about how much you impact people around you i think we actually are so obsessed with making like a big swooping change or a big massive you know numerical thing that we actually realize we don't realize how dehumanizing that is and that like real change or impact is it's so much easier to influence and impact someone else to change their heart. And then that actually is more impactful. You change one person's heart to, you know, see a little bit differently, to, you know, speak up more about social justice, um, to feel more confident in themselves, to heal around their trauma. Like that is so much more impactful than, in my eyes, me being like, oh yeah, I did this whooping thing where I gave out five, you know, $35 to 75 people, you know, which I did do. But for me, it's like you change one person and their view on life and they change others. This is a domino effect, you know, money impacts could only last so long, you know, but when you change hearts, you actually change things for generations to come. And that, that for me is what matters. And so when people ask or wonder, like, where do you start? I think the starting point is, what are you good at? What do you love? You know, what do you care about? You know, if you tell me you love gardening, then let's start a garden. You know, if you tell me that, yo, I like bikes, it's like, yo, go teach kids how to fix bikes. You know, it doesn't have to be as as overwhelming as what many people is once again I think we have this like weird imagination of leadership and it's like no leaders is you know it's you it's that's all that matters is like how you show up Mm -hmm. that's I love that statement that's 100% it's really beautiful it's like a a chain reaction 
you want to but to see a real change i feel like you want to reach hearts and souls so people can change their mindsets and their attitudes towards things or just instilling awareness in people and changing perspectives so so much so that they will like want to share things with other people and then change change other perspectives and i like yeah. what you said about um when, when we all picture a leader typically it's like an this extroverted person or be charismatic and things like that um but i was talking to friends of mine about leadership and personalities and things like that and the book I don't know if you've heard of it. The book is called Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Oh, oh by Susan Cain. It's it's a good it's oh, a that's good, awesome. Yeah, it's about like quiet leadership, basically, how introverted people can be leaders in their communities and in their lives, and how being labeled as an introvert or having introverted tendencies isn't a weakness or anything to be ashamed of. It's something you can work work towards like impacting people and different things yeah I agree and I honestly feel like you know the the narrative of leadership is so harmful to everyone you know we're not living and experiencing life to our fullest potential just because we make assumptions on people's capabilities just because how they like maybe present themselves or how they are. Like I remember um, when I was doing mutual aid Worcester and our immigrants and refugee pantry, I remember how everyone kind of was just like, oh, who's leading this? And, you know, sure, I made the call for people to donate and, you know, how to distribute, um, you know, the food boxes. But when it comes to like vegetables, like I don't know anything about vegetables. I would not know how many cucumbers a person need in a week, you know, or how many potatoes. And, you know, we had over 50 volunteers and it was they came up with all of this themselves. You know, a person who is a chef actually was like, oh, you know, for a week, this person probably needs this much rice. And, you know, they, they just automatically was a leader, but no one, you know, walking into a room, no one assumed this person was the one leading the whole thing. And I think that's detrimental to us because, you know, we become very, um, I'm, I don't want to say blinded because that's a ableist, but, you know, we become um, ignorant to, you know, the potential that's around us. That's, yeah. Yeah. I also deeply like believe in self-fulfilling prophecies. And so when we tell young kids, um, you know, just because they're an introvert, that means that they're not gifted, you know, or just because they're X, Y, Z, you know, they're not gonna be successful. Like those things, like we internalize and become self-fulfilling prophecies. And mm -hmm. for me, that's, that's where it's so painful and harmful um, that we keep seeing it play out. You would think that, we would know better by now. And yeah. actually in the recent, um, I'd say in the recent decade, we've seen more people do anonymous like activism and mm -hmm. anonymous organizing. And I really think that stems from a generation that isn't here for the credentials. They just want justice. You know, they, they yeah, just cool. want liberation. Yeah. Um, and even in the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, I think everyone was like, well, who's the leader, you know, obviously, you know, the, yeah. yeah, there's like the three women who, um, the three black women who created the Black Lives Matter um, thing, but, you know, different chapters, you know, popping off and all this stuff, people are just like, well, Black Lives Matter is a leaderless movement, and it's like, mm -hmm. is that a bad thing? Right. 
like you know are you trying to assassinate like the new leader like <laughs> nah people just want justice um and that leaderlessness and i like you know the the servant leader the the one who doesn't have to have take off take all the credits they just mm. they just over it they just want you know liberation so i think it's powerful that way too because everyone has everyone is on the same mission and they're all going to come up with the same not the same energy but like full force with their passion it's not just one person who's feeling this passion and other people are like kind of passively following them. But when everyone is all a leader, it's like now there's a movement, things happening. Yeah, exactly. You get to like vibe out on all the energies, you know, that's where power comes from mm-hmm. is like different perspective. And also like, we should just be honest about like, you know, like our limitations and capacities and like our weaknesses, like that's okay. It's okay to be vulnerable and like tell people I suck at math, you know, like mm-hmm. someone else can do this piece, um, you know, and also to do that self-care um, piece that I think is widely not done, right? Is like, why do we need a martyr? <laughs> you know, why mm-hmm. would we want that? Yeah. We want people to take care of themselves. So it's like, yeah, you could do all this stuff, but you know, as people say, it takes a village. Let's let's just do it together. Mm-hmm. You mentioned two things that I want to touch upon. Um, going back to introversion and stereotypically in the Asian community, like stereotypically, um, Asians are said to be really quiet, reserved, introverted. And I don't know where I'm going with this, but that and then like leadership well, I think culturally Asian folks are more conditioned to be quiet and be, you know, I think it really stems from like this obedient, subservient, you know, and I don't want to say subservient because I think we're, we're working with two different things, right? One is a lot of like conditioning religion-wise, whether that's like Buddhism, Confucianism, you know, that kind of more Zen, Eastern, (laughs) you know, thing that we got going on for Asians. You know, I think we, not naturally, but like over centuries of doing more like believing in like, oh, we got to be obedient to our parents and subservient and like there's karma. And so there's like this ideology that we've maintained within our spirit and soul and I and I'm speaking as a Vietnamese person so I don't want to speak for all Asians but I you know I think that is culturally um how we've kind of been for a really long time and then this western notion of like subservient obedient like geisha you know like that kind of mix emasculating the men in you know Asian cultures. I think like these are two forces that is happening. Um, as well as you put in the dynamic of survival and that we're refugees and we had to run, you know, flee our country to come to America. And if we speak up about anything, it almost feels like we're we're being bad people because we should be obedient and pay America, you know, back for saving us, right? Like we're indebted to America. Um, and so I think, you know, these these things are spiraling and circling, um, especially with our elders um, who 
are just like, we survived, we made it, let's just keep quiet, let's just live the rest of our life here, you go be a doctor and a lawyer, and go be successful, like, that's what we came here for, um, and so, you know, I think that um, is definitely there, and then for our younger kids, or I keep saying kids, because I work with youth, but, you know, our younger youth, I would say, like, you know, representation, you know, they don't have that many um, people to, to witness, to be loud, you know, to be angry, to like speak up. And sometimes our folks are the first ones in their family to speak up, even if they're introverts, even if like their conditioning is to be quiet. They're like, at some point I have to, you know, say Black Lives Matter, you know, to their parents or like, let's not vote for Trump and that kind of stuff. Right, that makes sense. I um I read your article in the Worcester magazine, and you do touch a, a little bit about that gap of the generations and staying silent or being appreciative for being in this country so much that there's no reason to complain. Like you're already here, you're working hard. There's like you don't see the issues that are going on. Yeah, like I was telling the reporter actually, I was like, you know, every Thanksgiving, my parents always thank America, mm. you know, for us coming over. And in my mind, it's just like indigenous land, like this is their day of mourning, you know? And mm. so it's, it's, it's one of those where it's like, I have to kind of take in their reality, you know, like this is um, something they deeply feel. And you know, even, you know, when I talk to them about these things, it's like, they know the history, you know, they know that, you know, America colonized and like, you know, murdered and genocide um, on indigenous folks. But, you know, I think some folks just have this way of fragmenting themselves. And as they get older, that's all they could hold on to. And, you know, I could, argue with them every year <laughs> but you know at some point I think it's it's more just the sentiment of them surviving um that is really there and they've grown in other ways where I don't feel like I have to push so hard for certain things but um it is a difficult thing to kind of like you know wield the intergenerational things that we're all working towards or yeah. you know through yeah completely it's weird to have the same pride as your parents and or like not your you're not your parents specifically but immigrant parents like even with my parents too just like how proud they are to be in this country but we do have to remember where they came from and why they're in America and why they're thankful for that whereas like the younger generations we see the system the injustices the how the country was built and everything and we're like why are we even here you know mm -hmm. But it's a perspective yeah. thing. We do have to like shift our perspective sometimes. Yeah, I remember the first time I went to Vietnam was like I was 26 or 27. And oh, I went years to, ago. yeah, not that long. And I I remember going to like the, the town or the village my parents were from. And like, you know, those, um, like the, the medals for those, uh, those uh, 16 wheeler trucks. Mm -hmm. like that was basically like you just got like three things of that or four and mm -hmm. you built a shelter and like that was 
most of the village like that was on top of a river and so you know I think about that and then how my family came here and our first you know spot was like uh you know an apartment for like all seven of us and for them that's a big upgrade um in that way and so you know I totally have to really think about like yeah where they are right (laughs) you know their their own lived experiences I can never take that away from them Mm -hmm. they they fleed a country that you know when the one after they lost like the government took all their stuff and you know didn't allow anyone to speak negatively about the government or else they were imprisoned even longer or murdered Mm -hmm. right and so to come to a place where they're like oh at least we have voting rights (laughs) you know for them is huge even though in my eyes I'm just like this government is rigged there's like you get a decent guy or Trump you know (laughs) for me that's not enough but for them it's like do you know what's on the other side of this like the other side (laughs) (laughs) do you know where we came from yeah and they will well at least in my culture they'll always remind you maybe all immigrant parents they'll always remind you where they came from and why you shouldn't complain about whatever is happening here mm-hmm. it's like a trend um, yeah yeah there's this quote oh i want us to quote from the article it says i think you're talking about well kind of like what we just said like being grateful for america and also protests against the injustices that are part of society. So it's like that balancing act for, I guess, children children of immigrant parents. Like, how do we, how do we stay grateful for this country, but also protest against the injustices? Yeah. So you know, I think for me, it's like um, my mom and my parents are quiet so that I could speak up, right? um they they survived so that I could be full so I could be complete in the sense of like you know I don't have to shatter myself to survive anymore and so actually to me it's like a duty to fight against injustice you know it I'm also very spiritual so for me it's like it's it's how I give back to them karmically you know all the things that they couldn't do um in many ways my mom is a little bit uh she has like a scarcity mentality so like let's say and it's it's a war mentality it's literally a symptom of war but like you know when we used to have food she like is very like not very sharing of it you know and when I was younger as a kid I was like like that's weird mom you know like Mm -hmm. like like it's it's a negative trait like why wouldn't you give some extra food to like my friends Mm -hmm. you know like but as I got older I was like wait this is like literally a war mentality Uh, I need to survive and my kids gotta survive so I don't have enough for others right Mm um and so for me the fact that I do community work and I give it 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 heals her you know it heals that piece of her that didn't didn't know how to give couldn't give because she couldn't right um and so when I think about you know being their gratitude for America I think about the ways in which like my duty is to better this place um and not only because of my lineage but but it's because I'm literally on indigenous soil you know I like Mm -hmm am you know here where like I mentioned earlier like black folks 
um, built a lot of this place and immigrant folks. And I'm indebted not to America, but to the actual soil here, to the ancestors here, to the spirits um, who's, you know, within our forests and our rivers, like without them, like that for me is more important than America, you know, like they actually made this place. Um, yeah yeah I love that and I think a lot of us are on that same wavelength that we're getting there like at, at least now I hope of the year that we're in and everything we've seen we're all on that wavelength to I don't want to say give back to our country but like do something so at least do something I guess yeah I mean my hope is that we give back to each other right like yeah. I don't think I don't think we're tied to the government or tied to you know america i think we're tied to each other um like you know the whole thing about like you know our our liberation is you know tied together and it's interconnected you know how can i be free if you're not free you know i deeply believe that i also believe that like we could only be as human as how much we could see in others. Like, I think the issue with white supremacy is that they feel so dehumanized that they dehumanize others. And that's an issue. You know, you could only see other people's depths as deep as you are. And I'm sorry to say that a lot of them are shallow, you know? And so like the, the deeper that we could connect to each other, um, I think that, the freer we are um so yeah no that's that's so beautiful and it's so true as well that's yeah i'm gonna take that with me i like that (laughs) so you do so much for your community and taking care of others how do you take care of yourself what's your self-care thing i honestly find it very hard during covid because a lot of my self-care goes with like seeing people like I'm a very social person and COVID like knocks that out of the realm of possibilities and so I honestly feel like I just like to ground myself in the beauty of the world like I like going for walks I like seeing nature I like the small things in life you know whether that's like seeing my nephew um, who's like three or watching anime with my other nephew who's 18 mm-hmm. and and just being in community with people because actually a lot of the work that I do is easy because there's other people you know like right. there's other people who are there to laugh to um you know make decisions to share this pain and I think that that's what makes it a lot easier um I also was walking the other day and you know I'm as a very spiritual person as I mentioned like people talk about like the things you hear inside your head and oftentimes they're it's like in reference to like bad parenting or like you know um the detrimental like things that we think inside our heads like we're not good enough we're not doing enough blah 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 but you know on my walks like what I hear in my head is that like I loved you since the beginning of time. And so for me, I think my my spirit and my ancestors are always there for me. And that's what I ground myself in. Mm-hmm. Just being in the beauty of the world and in nature, like in the, in the most simple form. Yeah, because I think like 
what I really learned is that we have to make our own happiness, you know? And so, you know, from, from the petal of a leaf, how do I feel happy? You know, when I walk, just doing that, you know, life is a very difficult place sometimes and you have to find beauty. That's, that's the secret. You just have to, and you have to make it, you have to create it. You have to believe it. Mm -hmm. I like that too. Just the little things really. Cause when, cause life is hard. Like we've had a rough season, so really just have to find the beauty. And all. <laughs> rough is an understatement. <laughs> no, beauty. I'm like season. It, it feels like we're in like five seasons of this. <laughs> Bad word choice. Yeah, it's been Can it's been a time. <laughs> the little things, just yeah, it's, it's been a lot of negativity and just a dark time so if we can like find beauty and joy and little things I think nature is a good example or a good a good thing to be in because it's always there yeah yeah and I think we have to remind ourselves that we're always co-creating with the universe and with the people around us and at some point we have to take ownership of you know the way things play out sometimes and not everything is going to be, you know, perfect. Or like we mentioned, it's a hard season, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure most of us aren't like creating that part of it. But you know, if we're given something that's like, really, really difficult, you know, you still have some agency to create the other bits of it, you know, um, and I and I hope that people remember that it's like, you get to create some beauty, no matter what no matter what yeah I think not a lot of people hear that so they don't believe it or they don't know it at all yeah no that's super real I feel very lucky and I and I hate feeling lucky as if it's like a lottery or it's like a slot machine like I think everyone should feel um deeply connected you know to the universe and to their powers really mm -hmm. because sometimes we think about power and we think about like the white definition of power you know yeah. um, but what I'm talking about is that power that you innately are born with you know to wield fate in your hands and you know make things as you know as you can dream um, and I deeply believe that, even though, like I said, I know we're in a very difficult time and it might not feel like it. Um, I also think that like time is a very constructive thing mm -hmm. and that even if healing doesn't happen now or even this life, that it happens, you know, for you in the next life or for the generations after you. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we give up because of this moment in time and and rightfully so. I'm not I'm not saying that it's not valid to feel like giving up and hopeless. I just mean that like, you know, on a we're like this little atom in a huge universe. And so sometimes if we ground ourselves in that, um, I think we'd see differently. Absolutely. Oh, knowing our potential and knowing what powers we hold is important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I know someone had to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know who else is running for the Worcester City Council? Um, 
Yeah, I feel like, you know, we we have more diverse candidates this year, more as in there's like three of us. <laughs> um, but I think one of the things, you know, when it comes to representation, I want folks to like really think about um, how how representation, I think someone once told me like skin folk, but not kin folk. <laughs> You know, and, and I'm not saying this to direct it to any of the candidates in, you know, in Worcester, but, you know, I, I think I want to remind folks that, like, representation is beyond just, like, a similar identity, but it's also about similar values and similar um, beliefs in ways in which, you know, the government should, you know, run and stuff like that, because, I think there's times where we're excited um, to be like, oh my God, there's a queer person. And then you're like, wait, Caitlyn Jenner is running for governor in Cali and this person hates trans and queer people, even though they're trans, you know what I mean? Um, so I think that's what I would want to like really stress when it comes to representation and, you know, because sometimes people weaponize like identities, um, sadly. So I know that Lightfoot in Chicago got a lot of slack being like a lesbian black woman, but really not serving the community. Um, and so my hope in terms of like representation is like, yes, I'm a queer non-binary refugee um, running for Worcester City Council, but I'm also a community person from Worcester you know, who really knows the ground really well. You know, I'm a street medic. So like, I do support these actions um, that's happening on the ground. Um, I've been doing, you know, community organizing and youth work to really tend to the foundation of our community for the last 10 years. And so, you know, I think my also hope for representation is that people start seeing themselves um, so that we can shift the political landscape. You know, I don't want, people to think that, oh, you have to be college educated and privileged to run. I want you to be like, whoa, two ran and didn't really know too much about local government, but had these, you know, beliefs in, you know, changing politics enough to run, even though they had no idea, you know, the first step to becoming a city councilor, that you are a genius enough to make these things happen. Um, to make change happen. So that's what I hope people think about when they see representation. It's not just identities, but also identities and you see your own like intelligence and genius through me. I know that was a weird way to say it, not through me, but you get it. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that it's reflected back to them, you know, that they are also leaders. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It all comes down to your passion, what you're passionate about, despite, you know, your educational background or history and things like that. It's like, what are you passionate about and what do you what do you want to do about it? Yeah, like how like it's it's all problem solving, you know. And I think so I used to be a gamer when I was a uh, in high school. And I think gamers are so great because they're always problem solving. Yeah. So it's like if you could problem solve in a game, like problem solve in real life what does it look like for us to get to justice mm. you know we have people who love anime and it's like a lot of anime is about revolution like how about you become you know the main character or the secondary character like 
totally possible um yeah, yeah. shifting perspectives I like it yeah all the things that you know we have in our mind like I believe is possible and you know we once again tend to like look elsewhere or watch anime for escapism and it's like nah your life could be just as <laughs> fulfilling and epic you know yeah yeah that's awesome what is your advice to the youth and people or even those with immigrant parents who are looking to engage in social justice work or make an impact um first thing i would say is to tend to your heart um, and find what it needs because in order for us to do this work we really have to know our core and what we need i i see too often that people um come with their with the pain and the trauma and the hurt of oppression and rightfully so right um but in order to really do this work and feel the love and the beauty in it like you have to tend to your heart and know what and learn what it needs right whether it needs friendship whether it needs good food you know whether it needs um, you know, more books or whatever, um, you have to know your heart and what you need. Um, if not, we're just going to be like crawling to justice, you know, we're just going to be like bleeding and aching towards liberation. And I think we have to embody liberation and justice every second of the day. And that starts with us, you know, how do you feel free in your body, in your spirit, in your mind? Um, so yeah, start start with your heart and your needs. Mm -hmm. I love your perspective on life and everything in general. It's very, very insightful and, and helpful. Yeah, because I like I said, I don't think anyone should ever feel overwhelmed by you know our ability to transform hearts or to change. Um, some it, we just have all these narratives as if it it takes a lot but it really doesn't mm -hmm. it really just stems from you know even a conversation on your porch with somebody mm -hmm. you know or and we also undervalue the things that we naturally do right so like when you're having a conversation with your friend who's depressed like that's healing work you know give yourself credit for that um or when you're having a hard day and you're the one who's struggling to leave your bed and eat and then you decide to take a sip of Gatorade because that's all the strength you have to do, but that keeps you living a little bit longer. That's healing, you know, that's changing. Um, and so we need to give ourselves credit for the little things as well. Um, and to see that that is actually a magnificent thing that we're doing. Um, we're just we're just told that we're so insignificant so often that we actually believe it um and it's all false like literally um one of the quotes i love is like i am my ancestors while this dreams and it's so true like most of us are most of our ancestors and even my parents like i mentioned can't even imagine how we're living right now because it was never available to them and so i think it's our duty to really like live that out Mm -hmm. I like that, giving ourselves credit for the things that we overlook, things that we don't think is like, is anything big. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that does a lot. 
I wanted to touch on anti-Asian sentiments and racism, which isn't anything new. So there has been an e- increase since COVID, and there's also been an increase in supporters all around, just on social media, at least. Look, everything mm-hmm. is on social media. I don't know about in in the world. <laughs> social media, there's yeah, we're still in that COVID life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, do you have any messages to allies or people who are looking to support the Asian community? Yeah. Hmm. I think I think I would like people to to actually do the educational piece on their own, Um, especially in, uh, well, this, as someone who works in nonprofit, for any funders out there and rich people, you should support Asian people with resources to do the healing work um, and the internal work of our communities. So that's one. But in terms of like allies who, you know, are more like, students learning or just people learning I really think um that yeah y'all should learn about the history of Asia the same way that I need to because like Asia is a big country you know like and then there's South Asians there's Southeast Asians there's East Asians and then you know all our histories are different um and colonization plays out kind of similarly um but we have we did we've done so horrible at learning Asian history in general for a country that has a lot of Asian people in it the fact that a lot of people can't tell the difference between like Chinese folks and like Japanese folks and Vietnamese folks and like Laotians like we need to do better like straight up point blank like yeah like we need to just educate ourselves on the history um of like open a goddamn map and just do that, you know, learning of that. And then afterwards to really do the learning of the different wars that we had and why there was a different um, movements of diaspora, right? And I think that will teach us a lot about not only Asia, but the way in which the Western colonizers have really globally destroyed many places um and and that is also you you know I would say you should do the same for like a lot of like Latina countries because people don't know the difference between a Colombian and like an El Salvadorian and a Puerto Rican and it's like we just need to do better at learning um and so yeah that that's what I would say for allies is like step one you know let's just really do the basics of educating ourselves all right, doing the research, finding the resources. Because I feel like it's so easy for us to just group people into categories, like basic categories. Like everyone who looks a certain way is this. Everyone who looks a certain way is that. Without digging deep into the differences, the nuances, and what, what, what it means for specific groups within a community. Like for Vietnamese people within the Asian community, yeah, like for our program, um, our social justice program, one of our first questions was like, you know, what does it mean to be Asian American? And we asked each other in a group. And I don't think any of us came to an answer because the question was like, why are we all here together? You know, mm-hmm. and in this group, there's like, you know, South, e- South Asian folks, there's 
Cambodian folks, there's Vietnamese folks, there's like, you know, Burmese folks. And then we're like, why are we here together as Asians? And no one, we couldn't come up with an answer. Mm-hmm. And it really is, you know, colonization and, you know, these borders, these maps, these fake imaginations of nation state and, you know, who gets to claim this land, who gets to do that? Um, and why is it a permanent thing now? You know, because, <laughs> you know, because if we, a war would pretty much start up if a little bit of Vietnam tried to be like, I'm independent, you know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. Before I ask you the last question, do you want to put your socials out there, social media for people to keep up to date with you and your Oh, yeah. Campaign? Yeah. Yeah. So my Insta is at vote two. And so that's vote V-O-T-E and then T-H-U. And then you you don't have to follow my Twitter. It's OK. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me if you want. But Twitter is not my gym. It's okay. I take the L for it. But on <laughs> Facebook, it's also at too. All right, cool. Thank you. And people who are voting for you, that's solely within the Worcester, the city of Worcester. Yeah, yeah. So it's at large. Um, so anyone in Worcester can vote for me. Okay, Unless so. you're trying to do voter fraud, which I will say you should not do. <laughs> not <in Worcester. laughs> no voter fraud. If you're in the Worcester yeah. area, vote for two. Yeah, but if not, you could always donate. Um, donations is very helpful. And actually, I struggled a lot with thinking about running because I was like in a pandemic, in a capitalistic space. Should I really run and like ask people to donate to me, you know, when people are actually hungry? And I and I do financial like redistributing <laughs> during mutual aid for others. Um, and so it's really hard for me to be like, yeah, let me tell people to donate to me but actually you know I think one systemic change is very important and then two like I said I'm hoping for a political shift and an imagination shift in how we do this you know work together and then I also my you know core is that I'm doing economic justice and really hiring a campaign manager who's from the community and giving them an actual livable wage and hiring youth to really be um, more politically active and do this kind of work. And so that's kind of my spiel on being able to be like, yes, please donate to me because these are really important things to get behind. You're right, absolutely. Like you said earlier, it takes a whole village. So yeah, that's what you're doing. That's what you're all about. Yeah, so you could donate at vote2.com vote2.com all right got it so to close what is your message that you're leaving the listeners what is your what should they take away from you and what you do what's your overall message oh that is such uh that's such a hard thing to kind of summarize um well i guess i will quote grace lee boggs who says wage love And I love that because oftentimes you hear wage war, you know, and I think at this point in time, we need to wage love and not in a way that once again is like all lives matter unity. It's really about waging love and pushing for accountability, for justice, for liberation and for our hearts to be transformed and to really 
really, really, really be grounded in each other. Like, I don't think we'd be able to make it through a pandemic um, unless we actually radically transform the way we imagine each other, ourselves, and our world. So I guess I'll close it with that. All right. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being on. Oh, oh yeah. No, thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. This was, this was great. I learned a lot. I'm taking a lot with me. Alrighty. All right. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for such a beautiful conversation. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Hope to catch you in the next episode, and be sure to check out Two's website at vote2.com. That's V-O-T-E-T-H-U dot com. And my hope is that we can all take something away from this episode and look into doing some inner work and reflection so that we can be impactful in our own lives and in the lives around us. Let's be intentional about the lives that we live. All original music produced by Stubborn Soul. Be sure to check them out on all music listening platforms at S-T-B-R-N-S-A-L. We'll talk in love. Peace out, guys.